Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. On behalf of the Global Autism Project, I would like to share our organization's official statement in response to current events and racial equality. Quote, While it is hard to find the right words to describe the outrage and grief over the violent and senseless death of yet another Black person, we understand the importance of taking a stand for justice in this moment. The Global Autism Project is founded on the values of inclusion and equity, and we will not sit back in silence in the face of such intolerance and disregard for the lives of Black people. We condemn all acts of hatred, prejudice, and racism. As we join you in solidarity, we, as an organization, will actively be supporting the Black community by engaging in these important dialogues and not turning a blind eye to your pain. We are committed to working with you to create a world that is truly free, just, and equitable for all. Our very own CEO has started a social media group for all people who want to take action and learn. Our hearts go out to everyone in our community dealing with the pain and fear of losing their lives and those of their loved ones. We are here to let you know that we acknowledge your feelings. We see you. We hear you, we value you, and we stand with you, now and always. Thank you for being part of our global community, committed to opportunity and safety for all people. End quote. This episode was originally scheduled to be released later in the month. However, in light of recent events, we've decided to move this episode forward. Today's guest is Joy Johnson. Joy is a behavior specialist, inclusion specialist, autism advocate, and leader in the Black autistic community. As the mother of an individual with autism and as someone on the spectrum herself, she offers an interesting perspective to individuals, families, and organizations who are looking to improve the lives of those impacted by autism. Joy advises parents about the benefits of ABA therapy and the importance of teaching social skills, including how to interact with police officers. She empowers parents and children by promoting preparedness rather than fear. In this conversation, Joy explains what services she received growing up, how she related to peers in high school, and why she struggled after having her first child. Having lived in Germany for seven years, Joy talks about the country's education system and attitudes towards autism. We also discuss the functions of self-stimulatory behavior, the consequences of masking, and the frustrating lack of support for adults with autism in the U.S. In this episode, discover what's possible when communities are built on dignity, fairness, and respect. If you'd like to know more about Joy and the work she does, please visit my show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. And now, I present you, Joy Johnson. 
Hi, Joy. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah. We have a wide range of topics to cover, and I'd like to start with your background. When did you first notice something was different about you? I've been diagnosed since I was six. So I probably didn't notice anything was different about me until I was mm, 12. So around 12, I probably noticed the difference, but I've always known about it. But I really didn't come into the awareness of what being autistic meant until I was in my 20s. And that's when I actually had the actual awareness of the differences that I had from my peers. What was it like for you growing up? Fine. I went to a school where there were a lot of, because I'm 43, so at the time it was Asperger's, and I went to a school with a lot of kids that had the same diagnosis, so it was never anything weird to me. <laughs> Did you receive any services? Yes, but it was in nothing that's really existent now. It was primarily a lot of experimental things because people didn't really know the approach of how to treat it then, you know, so a lot of experimental things, a lot of things that would definitely be considered unethical now, a lot of punishment-based procedures, behavior management. Mm-hmm. Could you be a little bit more specific with that? Electric shock therapy. Um. <laughs> so you received electric shock therapy? Yes. Yeah. A lot of procedures that just require what we in the field consider punishment. Anything that's aversive is punishment. So if I flap my hands and I was reprimanded for flapping my hands or I was sprayed, like I was in a program once where you would get sprayed with water if you flapped your hands to, to redirect you, that's aversive. You know, and of course, that's something that would never go on, you know, like now. Mm-hmm. So this happened at school or you were going to a clinic? Hospitals, inpatient hospitals for facilities. Okay. And how old were you when this was going on? From six to 16. Okay. And how often would you go to the hospitals? Sometimes I required inpatient if I was having, you know, a hard time, but primarily the summers. But, you know, just like anybody else, if you have like a crisis or you may have to be admitted for a short period of time. So just on and off throughout my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned they were trying to reduce hand flapping. Mm-hmm. Were there other behaviors too? Oh, yeah. Aggression, self-injury, just things that would be considered repetitive or what they call stereotypical behavior. So <laughs> just the kind of like cl- classic autistic trait. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that you're suffering from any trauma from any of those procedures? Um, no, I mean, I don't know if you ever get past it, but to the ability that I can, I have. It's not something that I think about beyond it being a motive to me not wanting other kids to go through anything that's aversive. I kind of recognize just with every other aspect of the medical field, things evolve. Um, if you look at things that were done before me, like in your 20s and 30s, you know, lobotomies and, you know, things evolve. So I recognize that and I don't have any like malice or anything. I just know that's how science and evolution in the world goes. So it's, it's, you know, I'm not angry or anything about it. Of course, I have things that resulted from it that would be considered probably like trauma inflicted issues, but it's not anything that I currently deal with. I feel like I've pretty, you know, like made peace with with it all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
So your parents were admitting you into the hospitals because that's what they were told was the best thing for you? They're both doctors. One is a psychologist, one is a neurologist. So no tolls, um, more of having the privilege of having access to things that were considered, you know, whatever the best was at the time. Some of it might not have been necessarily evidence-based at that point, but you know, have you have access to like a cancer treatment that's, you know, like innovative things that were supposed to be what the new science is. So it was more of, we discovered this, we have friends in this field, this is where you're going. Mm-hmm. And you said in your 20s, you became more aware of your autism. Were you masking or camouflaging any behaviors until that point? Um, probably. Not consciously, but probably just because that's what you kind of learn to do to be accepted, you know, like in society. Hand flapping, yeah. So, yeah, definitely. I wouldn't flap in public as much unless I really couldn't control it. But everything else I was kind of oblivious to. You know, I'm 43 and I I didn't have access to the Internet, you know, because I didn't grow up with that. And I'm not like these kids. So I never looked at the DSM or There was no such thing as Google, so I couldn't Google criteria. So I never aligned my traits with autism. It was just who I was. Flapping was the only thing I was really kind of cognizant of. And that's because other people would, you know, kind of look oddly. Stop it. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. but everybody who knows me knows about my stems. And most people that haven't seen me since I was a kid, they'll say, oh, do you still twirl your hair or flap your hands? Because I was known for like, that was just something I did. And I had a lot of neurotypical friends. So it's not like. You know, people were like, oh, it was just something that I did that people just like knew about, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. But like I said, there was no such thing as Google and stuff. So there was no way for me to align. And I didn't have like a DSM in my home, (laughs) you know. Yeah. Well, I probably did. I actually probably did, but I didn't, you know, (laughs) I didn't have have access to it. So so there was no way that I aligned that. It was just who I was. It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I started realizing that these were traits that aligned with it because Google came about and I was able to look up stuff and learn more stuff that was out there for the general public to know. Mm hmm. So growing up, did you have healthy social relationships? To a degree. It would appear as though I did. (laughs) Once I got to high school, I had a lot of neurotypical friends and it would appear as though I was popular. I didn't have a problem with like bullying and stuff like most autistic people do because I was so wild Um, (laughs) that I was known for being a rebel and kind of like doing anything. So I also was um, very promiscuous, but that was, again, a way that I probably overcompensated for not knowing how to engage in other ways. And when I engaged in that way, I felt like I was accepted. I felt like I was engaging. And when I would do what we would call maladaptive behavior, like really rebellious behavior, antisocial behavior, I got attention from my peers for that because it's like, wow, joy is just kind of crazy. So Outwardly, it would appear, you know, that I did, but um, I still was always confused because I didn't understand why I just couldn't have just regular relationships because I was always the one that was just doing a lot, <laughs> you know? Yeah. What was dating like for you? Um, again, I thought like sex was a way for me to like engage and be popular and be liked. So I dated a lot. <laughs> I had a lot of boyfriends. And then I realized that I kind of developed a reputation for like love them and leave them kind of thing, <laughs> you know, but it, it, again, it wasn't like 
people were labeling me like a whore. People were labeling me like Joy. It's just like, wow, she's, you know, like, so it was different. I, so I did date, but I, I don't think I ever really took the time to really date, you know, like what dating is supposed to be. I was just like, kind of go out with people, have sex. I was the fun girl, you know, so it wasn't a whole lot of dating. But then when I was around 17, I got into really intense relationships because I, I got into a relationship with somebody who was also neurodivergent. And I got pregnant and had my first child. How many kids do you have now? Three. The oldest one is 25. I have a 20-year-old and I have a six-year-old. And um, but the six-year-old is a doctor. Okay. And as an autistic parent, have you encountered anyone who said that maybe you're unfit to be a mother or raise a family? Yeah. So that was the concern with my oldest daughter. And so it was, it was a fight to be able to parent her and to have the privilege of being a parent. You know, even though, you know, I was a minor, it's not like other neurotypical minors that, you know, that doesn't happen to them, you know? So it's come up quite frequently. Adoption. And, you know, I adopted her six years ago. For home studies, you have to pass a medical. And the medical includes going through any diagnoses that you have. And because everybody who is autistic is not just autistic. It's a whole bunch of other things, too. So it would probably appear on paper that, you know, I was unstable because of that to the neurotypical eye. So there was a fight for that. So down from biological to adoption, it's, you know, like it's a fight. Mm -hmm. I actually ran away so I could keep my daughter. Mm. So that's really the only reason that I was able to keep her. I got on a Greyhound bus and I went to New York. Wow. And um, I stayed away from my parents for like five years. So you raised her by yourself? I met somebody, my husband, who I'm married to now. <laughs> he adopted her when she was uh, two. And he's neurotypical. He helped me, you know, from the age of two. But before two, I was by myself. Wow. What was that like for you? It's just really difficult. When I went to New York, I had kind of, you know, back in the day, I know you're probably young, but there was like a TV show called Montel Williams. I know Montel. <laughs> I, I watched a story of somebody who said they had drug addicted parents and they ran away from home and they went to the shelter in New York. And so I used their story when I got to New York and I didn't tell them that I had parents. I told them that my parents were drug addicts, which was totally untrue. Uh -huh. so, <laughs> so my parents were looking for me in Chicago, but I had decided that I needed to become somebody else in order to keep my child. So I got on the Greyhound. They had to buy one, get one free ticket. <laughs> and I went to New York and it was kind of like I was at, uh, what do they call it? Um, you know, when you're like playing it as you go. You know, I was just kind of, I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew I couldn't be me and keep my child. So I just kind of, you know, was very mysterious. Nobody knew a whole lot about me. They just knew I came from Chicago. I got a lot of help and I came from a very affluent home. So I probably had a lot of learned helplessness because I had access to so many resources being autistic. But once I got there, I automatically became another socioeconomic status because I'm a poor teenager with a child that doesn't have access to my parents' money. So it became a whole different dynamic. I didn't have a high school diploma because I was certificate track. So I didn't have really anything to kind of fall back on, you know, which is just why I fight for autistic people to try to get diplomas when they can. <laughs> mm -hmm. So meanwhile, your parents were looking for you. 
Were they trying to convince you to come back home? I never talked to them. Okay. I didn't talk to them for five years because I knew that they would have guardianship of me if I went back. Because, yeah, you know, an autistic adults, your parents can get guardianship of you mm-hmm. if they don't think that you're capable of living on your own. And that was a discussion that I was overhearing about me. And so I knew that I had to wait until I was at least 21 before I made any contact with them because I knew I would not have my own life and I didn't want that. So it was a struggle because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know a lot about the world because I had been so sheltered. And I went from being somebody whose parents are very, very affluent to living in a homeless shelter with a baby. What I do take on that is, like I said, I believe I had a lot of learned helplessness because. My parents did have resources, but when I had to do it, I had to do it. So being put in that different socioeconomic group made me not have the option of having the the same options that I had. You know, you can't go to a home. You can't. I needed to learn how to take care of myself. So I've experienced both sides of being rich and being poor and what it's like being disabled. You don't have that luxury of saying, oh, she'll be taken care of because that's what my parents always said. I couldn't be taken care of because I had to take care of myself. And a new baby also. So you were learning to take care of yourself and another human. Yeah. So people just kind of taught me as I went along. I would meet people in the shelter. They kind of, it's kind of funny now because I've developed a lot. I always tell people we're developmentally delayed. I'm probably not 43 now. I'm probably like 30, (laughs) which I'm okay with. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) But it's a slow thing. So I would meet people and they would say, you know, I knew that you needed some help. So they would check on me and show me how to do things. And, you know, when I got my first job, that was weird because I was used to being reinforced for everything. I always tell people you have to make the difference between encouragement and reinforcement because I was always rewarded for things just for doing every little thing. And that doesn't translate to the real world. So when I got to the real world, I expected to be rewarded for everything I did at my job. And that's not how it works. You know, so it was a really big, like, throw you into the world, throw you into the fire. But I'm actually very grateful for it because I think I would have been more disabled because my parents were so afraid. Not because they intentionally wanted to do that, but because they were afraid that I couldn't. And that fear and that even bias as doctors themselves of thinking that people like us can't survive in the world they wanted to keep me protected. And I was actually limiting the potential and limiting where I could have gone and where, I, you know, I wouldn't have never got married. I wouldn't have never, you know, it's a lot of things that I wouldn't have done because my child, they were talking about putting her up for adoption. And so it was a lot of things and she's 25 now. So I wouldn't have her, you know? Yeah. What's your relationship like with your parents now? We're fine. I'm a parent. So I understand what parents do. And my parents just wanted to protect me. I feel bad, actually, because I am a parent that I disappeared, you know, (laughs) on them. But I know that their intent was not to render me helpless or make me more disabled than I was. I know that their heart was to protect me and they just they weren't aware. They just couldn't see that I was capable of being where I am now. And now they're extremely proud. I still cry when my mom tells me that somebody asked about me and she's like, Joy is doing this because I'm on my own. I'm not with them. I'm not in the facility. I'm not, you know, Mm -hmm. So we're great now. We've moved past it. It took some years like because they were very upset with me. And there comes a point where you're angry about certain things when you're young. But as you get older and you have your own children, 
you realize it doesn't come with a book or a guide and you just do what you feel is best. And it's not always right, you know, but there's no way for you to really know that until that child grows up and they tell you like, uh, I felt, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So Joy, you lived in Germany for seven years. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you were there? Was that when you were younger or after you had kids already? After I have kids. I moved when I was like 30. I didn't want my oldest child to go to school in America because she's autistic. And I knew I just don't like the way the American system is. So I wanted her to go to school in Germany because I know they focus on the whole child. And she would have the same education that everybody else has, you know, because everybody has special education because they're all special, you know, because everybody essentially kind of has IEP because they focus on your strengths and your weaknesses and you as a whole child there. And so I knew that the American system would probably label her, you know, as as special ed. And I didn't want that. What are the attitudes towards autism in Germany? You're just another person with differences. Like nobody makes a big deal out of it. A lot of companies like SAP go after autistic employees because they see the strength that we have to be able to focus on things for long periods of time. So you're just another person. A lot of people that have like cognitive disabilities work for the post office and have good jobs and and that allows them to socialize every day and have the same routine. So they recognize some of our traits, but our strengths at the same time. And they help us to succeed in ways that I feel America doesn't do yet. America sometimes boxes us in and thinks we can only push carts at a grocery store or stock shelves or, you know, they don't see the creative ways that your special interests or the talents that you have can translate into a strength as an employee or as a person, period. So why did you come back to the U.S.? It was just time. You know, I'm American, so it was just time to come back and I like to travel. I like to see different places. I'm, I'm living in Baltimore now. I'm not from Baltimore. She's an adult, you know, so um, <laughs> just something, you know, different. I might go back. I haven't decided. And I did want to help here. I didn't know how. Initially, I thought I wanted to be a teacher, but I quickly realized it wasn't teaching that I wanted to do. Not like teachers aren't meaningful, but I wanted to have a stronger impact on behavior than just the learning aspect of it. Yeah, now you're a behavior specialist using ABA strategies in your practice. And you're also almost done with all of your supervision hours to sit for the BCBA exam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So could you describe some of the services that you offer? I do a lot of, I call it peer coaching, like helping other autistic adults maneuver through issues that they're having related to autism through things I've had, strategies I've used personally and strategies I've learned, of course from being in school and just kind of help them realize their potentials and their passions and realize that they don't have to be limited to what these programs say that they can only do, you know, and just helping them improve the quality of their lives. I do work with parents too. And I train parents on strategies they can do at home, but I also educate them on if they go into ABA, how to look for a clinician or a service that takes our values from the autistic eye into consideration. So they know, you know, what's beneficial to their child being an autistic person is too. Yeah. And you have such valuable input. Thank you. (laughs) Being an autistic person and also having a child on the spectrum too. So you're coming from all different angles. What are some of the values that you hold as an autistic person? Considering our difference, 
you know, like I really try to make sure that I promote neurodiversity, even stuff that I don't do. We're all individuals. And I may meet a client that does something that I've never seen or that's different from me, but I try to take it into consideration as to why they're doing it. As you know, you're the function of the behavior and try to apply it in a way that doesn't change who they are or try to get them to mask or compromise what they need. But if it's something that is harmful to them, find a replacement for it, but still serves that function. I really try to stay away from, well, I do stay away from trying to encourage anybody to mask in any way. And just disseminate information to employers, parents on our differences and what is beneficial to us. Like stemming, stemming may be beneficial to us and people don't view it like that. They just view it as odd. So you have to really think about what's beneficial to us, putting us, you know, who we are as individuals first. Yeah. And as you mentioned, masking can be really harmful. Could you share with the listeners who might not be familiar what some of these consequences are? You begin to lose who you are. Like in my 20s, when I started, you know, in my teenage years, I started hanging around neurotypicals a lot. So I know I was doing it without realizing it. And I realized nobody really knew me. So did I really have friends? Because I was holding back a lot of things that I did or who I really was. So you get depressed because you feel alone, because you feel like nobody really knows who I am because I can't be who I am. And I'm holding that back from everybody. And so suppressing all of that, you get a lot of emotional turmoil. And like for me, stemming is also a happy thing. So when I stem, it's because I'm just really excited. So at at moments where I need to release that, if I'm holding it back, that's just not healthy. It's like holding back happiness. And that's essentially what masking is, holding back who you are. And you just start to question, do I know who I am? Does anybody know who I am? Do I have real relationships? You know, so. Yeah. It leads to what's called autistic burnout, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes just maneuvering as a young adult, it happens frequently when you're working. Because, you you know, everybody to a degree, even neurotypical people have to mask in employment situations. So it's being able to talk to your employer about your accommodations and recognize when you're even doing it and you don't realize it. You know, sometimes it's hard to recognize when you're doing it because you're so conditioned. And so you have to really develop that awareness of what you need and learn how to advocate for yourself. You know that you have to say, look, this is different about me. When you go to an employer, I may need to take a break. The lighting, because sometimes you don't want to say anything. Like I've, I've been in office situations where the lighting is crazy and I just try to take it, not realizing that I'm just going to pop, you know, if I don't. But if you if it was just a conversation where I say like the lighting is really harsh, all they do is change out the bulbs. My last office, they put Christmas lights in it. That was great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just about, like you said, having that conversation and making people aware of what you need. And most of the time, I mean, I'd be surprised if anyone actually said no. Right. Well, you know, in America, you can't. Once you disclose and you make them aware that you need accommodations, they don't have to specifically give you what you ask for, but they have to negotiate and work with you until you guys come up with a mutual agreement as to what will be okay. But they have to accommodate you. Even in interview, from the interview process and on, if you are upfront, you know, and that's what I always try to make sure I tell the adults that I work with, be upfront. I disclose as soon as I'm interviewing. Now, if you're not comfortable You don't have to disclose your specific diagnosis, but you can simply tell them that you need accommodations because you have different needs and they have to still respect that. You don't have to specifically tell them your diagnosis under the law either. Okay. That's good to know. 
And the thing about masking is that so many females do it more than males. And what happens is that they end up going under the radar and maybe get diagnosed later in life, if at all. I believe that, like, I know that's true science. You know, I know it's evidence. But I also think that we're also accepted when we're quirky or different because people think it's cute. But if a male does that because there's this masculinity crazy thing, you know, that people believe a, a male has to act a certain way, then I think they identify it quicker because they're like, something is wrong with him. He, you know, but with us, it's like, oh, she's so cute. You know, so I think the way that they view men and women, too, is different. Right. Or maybe little girls can kind of blend in at, on the playground if they're not really in a group. They can just jump around from social group to social group and no one really notices that they're not playing with anyone. Mm -hmm. But the problem with this too is that it causes a bias in research and most of the studies are about males. So without information about autism in females, then some interventions might just be specific for males and might not work exactly the same way for females. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have a lot of recent research on that. So I've read a lot of recent research on that lately in a lot of journals like the Java journals and stuff. So yeah, it's proven now. So I'm expecting once you know better, you do better. So I would expect that now things should change now that they're aware of the problem, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. So Joy, you're also a PhD student. Mm -hmm. What's your dissertation about? The social validity of self-stimulatory behavior in adults diagnosed with autism. The only reason I'm getting my PhD is because I want to do more research that involves us. So we have a voice in treatment. The research will inevitably impact treatment. So I want our voices to be validated. And unfortunately, I feel like ABA doesn't recognize us as the key stakeholders that we are all the time. And we are, we're also the consumers. And I feel like a lot of it is dictated from the neurotypical perspective in terms of social significance, because that's really subjective. It's based on, you know, what a parent or what they think society deems is appropriate. However, society includes us. So if we're moving towards a society that's more accepting of neurodiversity, then you have to include us in that conversation. And stimming shouldn't be self-stimulatory behavior is stimming. That's the clinical word or whatever, because I know your listeners might not know. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> stimming uh, is one of those things that's more beneficial, but a lot of times you'll meet parents that think it's odd and they just it's not that they're doing it intentional. Like I always tell people they try to attack parents. They think that their kid is supposed to look like everybody else's kid. And a lot of them haven't met autistic adults. But once they learn, once I tell a parent, you don't want to target this because it's more beneficial and I tell them why, then they're like, oh, I never knew that. And then they move on. You know, so I get upset when a lot of autistic adults kind of yell at parents. They don't know. And part of the reason they don't know is because the autistic community seems so unapproachable. The parents are afraid to ask those questions because we appear to be like angry. And, you know, everybody is always talking about the harm that their parents did. Well, you need to get out in the community and go beyond social media and have conversations with these parents and get involved in a meaningful way if you really want to help change things. But simply yelling at them. And sensationalizing ABA is not what is going to be the solution for helping people. Yeah. What would you say, though, if a child is stimming all day and it's getting in the way of their learning? Would you target it then? Um, okay. So I've seen people say that it's getting in the way of their learning, but how would it be getting in the way of their learning? 
I actually stem while I'm working and it makes me more productive. I watch credits because I need that extra stimulation because I'm sensory seeking. And so it actually helps me be more productive. So you have to do a cost benefit analysis and think about if you take that away from them, will they be less productive? Because that's something that they may need because they're understimulated. You know, so unless it's harmful, I would not. A lot of times it's very subjective from your view, not you, but from, yeah. from like the teacher's view, they're like, oh, it's getting in the way. But you can't see his internal events. You don't know what's going on inside of him, especially when people are non-vocal. Yeah. And then they take it away from them and then other behaviors. So you take it away and then you get aggression instead. Yep. You get the internal events that you can't see. Frustration, feeling like you have no control over your own body because people are trying to dictate what they want you to do. So to me, again, unless it's harmful, I'm like, you need to know because that's helping us. When I'm stemming, like I, I have stuff scrolling at the same time. I got sound. I need that in order to be productive. So you have to take all of that into consideration with the individual and kind of reconsider what disruptive is too. Because a lot of times parents will say things are disruptive or classrooms will say it. And it's really not because if the kids get used to it, if it's normal, then it's not disruptive anymore. It happens with kids who have Tourette's all the time. You can't control that. There's nothing you can do. I had a friend who had Tourette's in school. We got used to it. And it was just like white noise. Though. <laughs> it's again, normalizing and taking into consideration. It's because they think that we can help it, that they try to change it because we don't have Tourette's. So maybe we can stop that vocalization. Okay, we can, but what are you sacrificing for me internally when you do that? You know, so I just ask that people do that. So long story short, it would just really depend on if it was harmful, what setting it was in, the individual, and if we could find something that we could replace that gave them the match sensory input. If it's something that you could find that give them the match sensory input that might not deserve, you know, people around them, then yes. <laughs> but generally, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you've built quite a following on Instagram. And you're part of the hashtag actually autistic movement. For our listeners who are not familiar, could you please explain what that means? It's a group of people on social media that are actually autistic. And <laughs> we kind of just use that so people know that we're not just talking about autism. We are actually autistic, you know, and it's also promoting that you listen to the voices of autistic people and considering topics about us, like nothing about us without us, you know? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that sometimes the autistic population can seem unapproachable. Have you encountered any conflicts because you're doing ABA? Conflicts from other people who maybe are anti-ABA? Initially, there were a lot of people that were always putting stuff on my page like ABA is abuse, blah, blah, blah. You know, now I've reached a point where people are like, because I'm not an actual ABA therapist, you know, like I kind of like do my own thing. And also because I disseminate a lot of information about the autistic perspective, like not targeting eye contact, stemming, things of that nature. I've become like the, what joy does is okay. You know, but what I try to get them to realize is what I'm doing is what everybody potentially could be doing plus more, you know, not like I'm just the law, you know, but um, it's just educating the parents to know that they're in control of therapy. And if they don't want their eye contact to be targeted or stemming, they have the ability to tell them no. So the ABA can be 
reform to the point that it's okay from everybody if parents are aware and equipped with the knowledge that what I say goes, you know, so. (laughs) Yeah. And at the end of the day, ABA is just a science, really. Right, right. It's principles of learning. Right. So that's the argument that I always give them to. But I think that a lot of people, when you when you haven't went to school for it and, you know, all you've really done is, you know, like Googled and stuff, you don't realize that uh, the malpractice is the human practice. It has nothing to do with the science. It's the subjectivity of social validity. It's the human practices, but it's not the science. The science is just human behavior. It has nothing to do with autism. It's just how humans learn. And that's what I try to tell them all the time. But they're like, your ABA is different. I'm like, no, it's not. (laughs) My ethics in terms of how I consider things, approach things may be different, but I'm using the same science. So a lot of people have, have tried to get me to say that I'm not doing ABA and to try to get me to like formulate some type of therapy and just name it my kind of therapy. But it would be a lie because the fundamentals and the basis of everything I do is strengthening behaviors that I want to see through reinforcement and weakening behaviors through not reinforcing it. And that's ABA. So if I was to market it as something else, then I wouldn't be being truthful with you because I'm using ABA strategies. I might not be an ABA therapist, but I use ABA strategies. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You posted something recently about the acquisition of social skills being a requirement, especially for African-American children. Could you elaborate on that? Recently in America, there are a lot of, uh, I mean, just what, a couple of days ago, you know, a Black guy got killed. Mm -hmm. So I feel like our odds statistically of being accosted or um, approached by law enforcement or um, even other people in the community and not understanding our behaviors is higher than your neurotypical peer, especially when it's Black males. So if you are engaging in like aggression, inappropriate touch, self-interest behavior. These are things that you have to target because in America, in today's society, these are things that you cannot do in public. You have to find some type of replacement and also social skills. You can teach and help people to know how to interact with law enforcement specifically when they do encounter them. Like that can be a whole, you know, like program to, to know to disclose, Yeah. to know, you know, knowing when to disclose and how to disclose. Voicing that you might need crisis intervention instead of, you know, a police officer if somebody were to call the police on you. You know, just certain things that you specifically have to address being African American because people look at you and they view you as a threat. And don't let it be like a big black, you know, male. It's just, it's not realistic to think that you can't put your child through social skills training. And a lot of the autistic community online is so anti ADA that they, are scaring parents. And these are parents who have children that may be impacted differently than the autistic community is largely online. Because online, largely people are, you know, like autism level one. They don't need a whole lot of support. But when you're talking about kids who have two and three and, and may need more support, you can't escape therapy. And OT and speech are supplementary. I think that the community is in the mindset that you can do that as a replacement, but they don't address behavior. So what's your solution? So my argument is always, if you don't have a solution or an alternative, that's not fair because you're being exactly what people accuse us of being, which is inward and caring about self. Because what about those of us who have greater needs and who need more support? We need therapy. You know, I I, I was somebody who needed therapy. You know, it wasn't an option for me. But parents are so afraid because ABA is abuse is a hashtag. 
you know, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you write specific programs for parents about social skills? I do. And any parent that inboxes me, I always respond to them and tell them because they like, you know, I've heard horrible things about ABA and I'm afraid. Can you help me to know what to look for and what to do in trying to get a therapist that doesn't make my child go through trauma or get abused? On the regular basis, I talk to parents about that. And then I also do parent-mediated interventions. Like I'll, I'll do the brief and some other things and take some interview information from them and help them to address things in the home, you know, like fecal smearing, all different kinds of things that they can try to address at home in the interim. Because, you know, it also is a lot of waiting lists and stuff too. But some parents are so afraid that they don't want it. So for those parents, I try to serve as a resource to help them to do things at home if they're just absolutely against doing it. Yeah. Do you have a local ABA agency that you refer people to if they want more intensive services? Yeah, I have a few that I will recommend locally. And then I get remote supervision. So I know people in other places. So I'll try to, you know, like recommend it to them as well, refer them to them. But I really do try to get them to get like structured, you know, like therapy and opposed to parent-mediated intervention. Did your daughter receive ABA? Nope. I didn't know about it. Mm. I didn't find about it until I came back to America. That's why I'm so late, like coming. I came back to America. I was teaching. It's called learning strategies in Germany. And it's for people who learn differently. And I was teaching that in Germany. And all my students had autism. And then I came back to America and I started working for a big school here that is all autism. And I found out about ABA. The next week I enrolled in school and I got my master's. I didn't get it in a week, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't waste any time enrolling. Right. So you mentioned earlier, if someone has autism level one or level two, level three, could you explain that? Now in the DSM, it refers you to one, two, and three, but it's just really a guide for clinicians and professionals to know how much support a person needs, but it's still not accurate. You know, like, I prefer it over functioning labels, of course, but it just kind of gives you a gauge of like autism level one needs the least amount of support. Autism level two needs the middle and autism level three, they need the most support. So it kind of gives people a gauge of how much support a person needs, but it's not static. I was diagnosed with Asperger's, but I've been re-diagnosed with autism level one. So it says I'm one, but in social situations, I feel like I probably could be two. You know, so it's not a perfect science, but it just kind of gives people a gauge of how much support a person may need. Yeah. And so you said you don't like the functioning labels, like high functioning, low functioning. We're all autistic. And like I said, it's not static. And people, I feel like it's insulting to call somebody lower functioning. And so my peers that people consider that, a lot of times, to be honest, they can be a lot more, because that depends on the context of the situation, very subjective. So if you look at a lot of, quote unquote, former Aspies, a lot of us have problems finding employment and keeping employment. However, clients that I have that would be considered by societal norms lower functioning, and they've had the same job for 20 years. So who's really higher or lower functioning? Right. Because they're able to keep employment, you know, like long term. We have more social deficits that as you get older tend to impact you more, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I don't like it because it's, it's not accurate and it's harmful. I don't call myself an Aspie. Number one, it's not in the DSM anymore. Number two, I feel like that creates like an elitism. Like 
you're above people when you're an athlete and people think that you're a savant and that's not true. Not everybody who is an athlete is a savant. Rain Man did not even have autism. He was based on somebody who had a genetic disorder. But people people think Rain Man when they think <laughs> Right. Like that's the go-to stereotype. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with classifying people or with labeling people as low functioning when maybe they have higher skills, it is underestimating their potential. And then the other way around, people who are high functioning, if you call them high functioning, it maybe doesn't give them a chance to get the right services or the right help that they need. Yeah. People ignore their deficits and then people ignore lower function and their talents and their work and kind of just write them off. And so I always correct parents. And they're always like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like because I model it, it shapes their behavior to where they, I notice they'll correct themselves, you know, and they'll be like, I mean, you know, I'm like, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. Especially talking about the child when they're in the room. Mm -hmm. Because we hear that. And it's just like, what do you mean? Like, am I, what do you mean lower? You know? So, yeah. And then I find a lot of my clients want to make themselves aspies, even though they're not. Because, you know, their parents have made them feel like that'll make them, you know, tell people you're, you have Asperger's, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, no. <laughs> okay, Joy, I'd like to close with one last question. Do you have any advice for parents whose autistic children have now grown up to be adults? I always want to tell parents to not write a child off once they turn 21 as having achieved everything that they could have achieved developmentally delayed is exactly that. We may continue to make progress and develop beyond 21. I was 26 when I got my GED and didn't go to college until after then. But if people had given up and kind of thought that, oh, that's where she's going to be at at 21, I wouldn't have been where I am today. So just remember that we may move a little bit slower and it may be a delay, but still invest and believe in your adult children that they can still realize their unique potentials. They may look different, but they can get there still. Yeah, that's great advice. Because that's what I'm dealing with a lot now. Parents who have kids that are at home still. Right, right. And dealing with different issues. Lately, I started a adult support group because I have a lot of them that are doing stuff like excessive masturbation and things like that. But it's because they want to be in a relationship. And so it's not necessarily the sexual thing. It's like fantasizing that they are in a relationship with somebody. And, you know, so I want them to make sure they give them those opportunities to get married, have kids, date, and don't just think just because they're 21 and still in the house that they can't have lives, you know? Yeah. (laughs) That's where I'm leaning towards as to trying to serve. You know, DCFS will take our kids at a higher rate than drug addicts just because we have autism you know, and think that we can't parent. So I think that it's a civil rights issue that they try to throw us in a neurotypical parenting class. So they'll give you 90 days, put you in a neurotypical parenting class, but then you don't learn and they wonder why, because you don't learn that way. Right. So I think that somebody needs to come up with a class for parenting for adults. So I'm moving towards more just helping adults. I have a lot of adults that I'm dealing with that are either at home or in residential or in group home and it's a lot of different issues because people just give up on us once we turn 21. You know, it's just like, really? Luckily, I met my husband and he saw the potential I had because I believe what people said too. Because you hear it so much, you just think, I can't. I have autism. I can't do this. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah. It's true, though, because at least in the US, there aren't so many services for adults. Yeah. Once you turn 21, it's over. And I'm going to tell you what I'm really pissed off about. A lot of these organizations will get the adults and put them in programs. But think about it. You got to keep them in the program to keep your money coming, right? So they put them in like these internships or volunteer positions, but never give them real meaningful employment. You kind of keep them in this loophole of I'm doing this volunteer. So I have a couple of them that are in my group now. And I'm like, as soon as this Corona is over, if you can work for free, you can work for money. I feel they're using them because they their bodies in the program. But then the employer gets the benefit of getting free work. So, of course, they're going to keep, you know, and it's just like a vicious cycle and it's messed up because these are nonprofits. And I always thought nonprofits were these amazing things. And they're more of a business than anybody else, especially the ones that have the great area of social enterprise. They have created business, you know, like it's really crazy. It's worse than corporations. And I'm like, I feel like they're using them, you know, Mm -hmm. just for funding. What do you think can be done about that? Organizations that are run by autistics need to to start coming because we have the best interest of us. So we need more people in place that are there for us. If you think about it, a lot of us are really rigid when it comes to fairness. You know, we don't lie. We don't cheat. You know, so we're going to make sure that we ensure that we get, you know, what we because they don't even realize it. They just think, oh, that's all I can do. I can only volunteer. I can only do internships. You know, and it's like, no, I took three people out of a program that I was working for. And I got them jobs within a month and they're all still there, essential workers working through the corona. But yet their entire lives, they were told that they had to go to this day program and only do volunteer work, sweeping, doing janitorial services. I'm rigid with my food. So luckily I develop relationships with the places that I eat because they know me because I'm real weird with my food. So I have unique relationships and Mod Pizza, that's a place in America now that's like, and Starbucks, because they know me and the locations that I go to, they, they're like, oh, that's Joy. She needs stuff to look. I have to have it a certain amount of ingredients on a certain, like I'm real weird. It has to look a certain way, but because they know me. No, I get it. I'm, I'm like that too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, because they know me, we've talked about it and I've ended up developing these relationships that have gotten my people that I know employment. Because they're like, oh, we know you and you have autism and you're just different. So that kind of opens their minds to like, I'm like, oh, I got a friend. You know, I'll call one of my clients like a friend. I'll be like, I got a friend that needs a job. Would you consider them? And they're like, yeah. And Starbucks is amazing. Starbucks has like four people that I know, you know. Oh, nice. Yeah. (laughs) Because I go to Starbucks three times a day and they know what I drink and it's really specific. (laughs) So you're like doing job coaching on the side. (laughs) That's part of what I call like the peer self-management. You know, like I help them once we get to the point where we have behaviors under control, I try to move to transition and helping them find employment. I have a couple of people that I'm talking to now that are in group homes and I'm going to try to transition them to independent living with help because, you know, you can get assistance. And then I have a couple of people and this is what really makes me upset. They're in situations where people are using them for their check and they don't realize it because they get social security. So I have a girl I just talked to yesterday. She's paying all the bills in her home, but she never has any money for herself. And I I was telling her last night, if you can afford to take care of your whole family, which is like 10 people in there, you can definitely get DBA to set you up with the waiver and you can have somebody to help you come in with the cooking and cleaning, but you can pay your own bills and live by yourself. 
because she's at a friend's house right now because her mother's boyfriend is abusing her. So it's more adults like that than you realize. And you will find this interesting being a BCDA, Rachel. So in this social group, these people have mostly known each other for like 30 years because they went to elementary school together. There's a school for autism and they all went to school together. However, it's really interesting because some of them were there on scholarship. They're of various social economic statuses, which, you know, typically doesn't happen in a neurotypical friend group. So some of them are extreme, like, I mean, extremely rich, like parents making millions to extremely poor. But they've all grown up now and different things have happened with their lives. And one of the guys, like as soon as this corona is over, I'm going to try to, he's living in a crack house because they're using him for his money, but controlling him. He's addicted to drugs. Wow. And it's weird because we're on Zoom and they've all grown up with each other and they all got different personalities and he'll be actively doing drugs, but nobody, it's not shocking. It's just like, (laughs) you know, because everybody's just like, you know, and he's living in a situation because his parents were like, you know, he's no longer useful to them, I guess. You know, that's the way he makes it sound because he wasn't covering their bills and they put him out. And now he lives in a house full of drug addicts and that's how they control him. So he's autistic and on drugs. You know, so there's some of them that live at home with their parents. There's some of them that live independently. There's some of them that live in HUD housing. So it's like 15 of them, but they're all in different places. And it's so weird because like, There's one guy, he's a federal employee, he's an accountant, but they've never thought to tap into that resource of trying to find employment through him. And there's such a strong network because they're from diverse backgrounds, but they have never thought to use each other for the network that they are. You know, so I'm really, really enjoying more working with adults because I'm realizing the problems that we have. There's one guy who's 47 and he did not know he was autistic until his parents died. His parents never told him. They just told him he was, you know, different. He's like, he's very upset now. How did he find out? They died. And when they died, DDA put him in HUD housing because he's autistic. I see. He qualified for independent living and he has people to come in, but he didn't find out until they died. He didn't know he got social security. He didn't know any of that. Oh my gosh. So he had to figure all of that out when they died because he found out he was autistic and, you know... Yeah, that's a crazy story. It is. It's a lot of them that are like that. And then some of them don't have autism. Some of them just have learning disorders. And the ones that have learning disorders think that they are smarter than the ones that are autistic. So I've recently had to facilitate some like, you know, there's no like higher or lower worth, you know? (laughs) Yeah, we're all just people. Yeah, because she'll be like, you have autism. You don't understand. I'm like, not. that's not how you talk to people. You know, like you have to realize that autism doesn't mean that you're higher or lower. And truth be told, some of the ones that have learning disabilities probably are lower on the cognitive level than, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's because the, the stigma of the autism and they went to school together and they thought, you know, the autistic kids were, were lower than us, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, it's interesting to see them have all grown up with each other and maintain these friendships over like 30 years. Some of them are dating. They tend to date around in the same circle. (laughs) But I think as a BCBA, like you would think it was really interesting to see how it turns out after the ABA and you're still at home. And, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of them are upset that their parents are still controlling their lives, but they really don't have any control of it because their parents have guardianship of them. 
And a lot of them are upset because the programs keep them busy, but they don't have time for real friendship. Like the programs keep them in all these activities, but they, they, they cry because they can't have boyfriends, girlfriends, and real friends and social, you know? So you think about those things and that's what's lacking in those programs, the true social opportunities, the true relationships. You're just keeping people busy, but you're not really letting them live a life, you know? Yeah. And so you're there to advocate for them and let them know what their rights are. Yeah. And it's funny because I've become that person that they call when there's a problem. They all get on Zoom. (laughs) They say like joy. And so I'm so grateful. I told them that they that I was accepted in that community because all of my other friends that are autistic were like stereotypical Asperger's, you know, and I've never had friends that were, you know, such a varying degrees of cognitive, you know, and intellectual. And I'm I'm so grateful because I feel like I found this new tribe of people that I love that I can help too, you know? Yeah. I'm just like them though. So they trust me and I speak up for them, you know, like all the time, like when they need, and I'm teaching them how to advocate for themselves. Cause I'll, I speak up if you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> we were in a group, we were in a group last night. And there was a neurotypical lady from the autism society and she was trying to like regulate it. And I was like, the way that you're trying to extinguish our conversation, like, cause somebody talked about sex, somebody was uncomfortable. It got weird for a while, but you have to, that's a learning opportunity to talk about why you're uncomfortable. People are still people and we're still adults, you know, don't try to mediate it like we're kids, you know? So <laughs> yeah, exactly. You guys can make decisions for yourselves. Right. So that's what I was trying to get through to her. And she was just like, okay, I understand that. I'm like, when you are in normal social situations, there's going to be confrontations of things that people say that somebody else might not like. But in a real adult situation, you don't just say, stop it. We, you know, like we, you have to talk through it, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Joy. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I think your story is just really inspiring for many people for parents, for other people with autism. I think your message that you're spreading is really valuable and needs to be heard. So please continue it. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you, Rachel. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Joy. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. I hope Joy's story shed more light on how autism impacts different aspects of people's lives. Joy posts valuable resources on her Instagram, at Joy F. Johnson. Her recent posts include ways to teach safe behavior during an encounter with law enforcement. Joy teaches children skills such as disclosing their diagnosis verbally or through handout cards, keeping their hands visible at all times, using coping strategies to stay calm and not run away, and calling a personal advocate, relative, or friend. In the U.S., individuals with autism are more likely to be approached by law enforcement than their neurotypical peers. The odds are even higher if they're also African-American males. While this is the unfortunate reality that we live in, we must prepare our autistic children, especially our autistic black children, with the right tools to keep themselves safe. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. Thanks for listening. Take care.
You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.